morning, church. Great to see you all. Welcome to Union Chapel today. Didn't that look interesting? Listen, a world-class event and amazing connections we know is going to bear a lot of fruit in the future. So thank you for your support and prayers. We wanted to give you a little glimpse of what was going on in Fort Collins a few weeks ago. Great, great time. So I hope that is encouraging to you. Welcome to you joining us online this morning. We're so glad you've chosen to be with us. We're glad you're here. Uh, we want to talk about serving today. And uh, before I do that, just I wanted you to know that we had decided, you know, that golf cart out there, we're going to give a free golf cart away to anyone who sat on the front row center in this service, and no, one, no one's going to win that today. So just wanted you to be heads up about that. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. This is uh, Jesus being approached by James and John, two of the disciples, and the boy's mother, Salome, and we'll unpack it from there. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, thanks for doing that. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And when the 10, the other disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God give us instruction through these important words. You may be seated. Thanks so much. You are called to be great. I'm talking to you, every one of you within the sound of my voice, called to be great. This has nothing to do with your best life now, whatever the heck that means. I don't, even, I don't know what that means. I'm, I think I'm living my best life now. Good for you. Put a bow on it. I don't, I don't understand it. But God wants you to be great. Now, this isn't about self-help or human potential or any of that. God actually defines greatness and calls us all to that greatness. And in so doing, God is not looking for powerful people. He's not looking for gifted people. He's not looking for all sparkly people, handsome, pretty people. He is looking for people who are willing to give and who are willing to serve. That's what he's looking for. Now, I have three points. This is a three-point sermon. It's on your outline. If you have your app up, you can see the outline. Here's the first point. Greatness is not a position. Greatness is not a position. Now, verse 20 from our text, the mother of James and John, her name is Salome. She is a devout person. She's a good woman. She was at the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the crucifixion. She is, uh, she's, she's got moxie. She's got spunk, and she brings her two boys and kneels down in front of Jesus to ask a favor. Now, 
just a reminder, James and John were, were close to Jesus. In fact, Jesus had given them a nickname, called them the Sons of Thunder. Uh, probably got that name because they were very passionate, really out there. One day they were passing through Samaria, heading to Jerusalem, and this village in Samaria didn't welcome Jesus well. So they didn't respect Jesus. And so James and John looks at Jesus and says, you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? And Jesus said, stop it, boys. <laughs> but Because they, they're just out there. They just push the, push, the, push the boundaries. Sons of thunder. So they show up. They're good friends with Peter as well. So these guys are, these guys are close. They were at the transfiguration. They were in the garden of Gethsemane, the night of the betrayal. They, they were close friends, as I said, with Peter. So Jesus says to the, to the mother and these boys, what do you want? And the mother says, my sons, when you come into your kingdom, and again, they're imagining some kind of geopolitical kingdom, uh, the restoration of, of the nation of Israel out of Roman bondage. So this military political kingdom. And she says, when you come into your kingdom, would you allow my sons to sit one on your right and one on your left? If you're assigning titles, maybe CEO or CFO or executive vice president, something like that, we don't really care. And Jesus says, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. In other words, between the lines, you hear, did you know that I'm going to be tortured and mocked and beaten and crucified? I mean, do you really want some of that? And he says then, in context, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, the cup is symbolic of suffering. We know that Jesus used that phrase in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Lord, would this, may this cup pass from me. So he's associating a cup with suffering. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And immediately, without hesitation, without thinking it through, James and John said, oh, yeah. Yeah, we can. We can drink, we can drink that cup. Not a thing. We'll do no problem. Matthew 26, 56 reminds us when Jesus was really in trouble with the authorities uh, shortly after that, it says all the disciples left him and fled. So James and John, oh yeah, they can drink of the cup, no problem. Verse 23, Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. Now here's what we know as history unfolded. We find in Acts chapter 12 that James, one of these two brothers, was beheaded. We also know that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. We think, we believe he's the only one of the 12 disciples who lived a normal lifespan and that he died an older man on the island of Patmos, but not before he had written the book of the Revelation. So an important role in the kingdom. Now let me just make this clear. You can be the pastor of a church and not be great in any way. You can be the CEO of a large company and not be great. You can be the president of a great university and not be great. You can hold the highest political office in the land and not be great. You can be a prominent athlete or successful entertainer and not in any way be great. Now, the world may acknowledge uh, you in some horizontal human-to-human -human way as important or special or great, but God will not assign the term great to you because you hold a particular position. Greatness is not a role. Greatness is not a position. Jesus was not looking 
for someone to sit on his right and left hand. He was looking for those willing to serve and to sacrifice and to suffer. Therefore, let me just put this on the screen for you. For all of us who want to be great, great for God, great in the kingdom, here's a simple step. Find something you can do and do it. Find a way to serve. Find something you can do and do it. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be pretty. You don't have to be gifted. You don't have to be all that in any category. You just have to be willing. Find something you can do and do it. Stop pursuing status. Stop pursuing recognition. Stop pursuing some official role or position. It's not about that. Here's the second point. Greatness is not about position and greatness is not about power. Verse 24, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant, uh, severely distressed. They were PO'd toward the two brothers. And you can understand that. I mean, can you imagine if you walked into your basketball coach's office and two of your teammates, you over here saying, I don't think he should be the captain any, anymore. We should be the captain. You would take offense. Or if you went into your boss's office to drop something off and you couldn't help but see a note from another employee saying, I should be the one who gets the promotion and the raise, not you. That would be annoying. Jesus steps in and says, verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, rulers of all sorts in the, in the, in the Greek world take authority and abuse that authority and people underneath them manipulate authority. This happens all the time. Happens in business, happens at the university, happens in your high school, how people will kiss up to the boss for a promotion or kiss up to the coach for more playing time or kiss up to the teacher for a better grade. Happens every day. Jesus is just saying, look, this happens all the time. Then there are people who are given a little authority and then they abuse it. Beth and I own a home on a little lake down in Brown County and we have a lake patrol because there are rules on the lake. Now, the lake patrol person who runs around in this lake patrol boat, they don't have any special credentials. They're not police officers. They're not uh, part, of the, part of the official uh, Coast Guard or anything like that. They're just, a, they're just guys who answered an ad in the, in the local newspaper saying, come and be a patrol guy for $10 an hour. That's who they are. <laughs> but they... Somehow they get in the patrol boat, you know, with the siren and the lights and everything, and suddenly they transform into people who like to abuse authority. It's hilarious. It's like it's the chairman of the condominium association, and it doesn't matter what condominium association you are in, they're all the same, best I can tell. You can't have a satellite dish anywhere in the exterior of your property. You can't plant those petunias within four feet of the sidewalk. You cannot park your car in the clubhouse parking lot, even if you own the condo in the, in the association. You, and if you have visitors from out of town who need to park there one night overnight, what is the answer? The answer is no. You can't park your car at the, at the clubhouse. Well, thanks, Barney Fife. This is uh, really impressive. Really impressive. Jesus was just saying, this is the way it is around the world. There's a lot of foolishness, foolishness from people who manage to gain a little authority and a little power over other people. I made a little list of ways that you can know you're abusing authority because most of us have authority over someone in the world. And this is, these are ways you can know you're abusing it. Here's, I'll put it on the screen. Here's A. Keep, you keep reminding people of your position. 
If you have to remind people you're the leader, you're probably not the leader. Hey, I'm the leader here. Probably not. Probably not. That's not the way it goes. You insist people call you by your title. Uh, please call me doctor, professor, reverend. Don't call me reverend. Don't. I won't respond well to that. I appreciate some attempt to be respectful, but no, don't do it. I, I have a worldview that suggests there's only one person in the, in the world who should be revered, and his name is Jesus. And all the rest of us have stinky feet, and we're just getting along best we can. So no, don't remind people of your position. Here's B, expect or demand privilege. This is how... People abuse authority, parking spaces, status at the table, seats at the concert. You just expect special privilege. That's an abuse of authority. C, you're comfortable with personal praise. Now, it's okay to be thanked. It's okay to be appreciated. That's appropriate. That's good. But when someone says, nice job, you go, well, thanks. You know, I really am amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and good for you. You finally figure out who I am smart boy. That's not good. That's abusing authority. Or here's D, resenting or reacting to challenges to your authority. If your position is used as your persuasion, that's abusive. Hey, I'm the chairman of this committee. I'll decide who gets to talk and when the vote is taken, blah, 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 blah. This is happening all over America right now in school boards where there's pushback against certain agenda and people abusing their authority. Uh, here's the last point. You're unmoved by individual's pain. It's the general or even the commander-in-chief who would say, well, you know, in war there's always collateral damage. Unfortunate, but that's just the way it goes. Have you seen the pictures and names of the 13 service persons who died in is this past week? Tragic. It's the professor who doesn't have time for the student. It's the pastor who doesn't have time to meet the need. It's an abuse of authority. That's how you can know, ways like that. So greatness is not about position. Greatness is not about power. So greatness is about serving. It's about serving. This is how God counts greatness. Verses 26 and 27, Jesus said, the Gentiles abuse their authority but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must become your slave. Now, that's pretty stark, isn't it? It's pretty dramatic. It's like it's counterintuitive. It doesn't fit the world's mold for greatness. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's actually hoping for us that we'll be better than we really, than we really are. He has a hope that we will exercise our responsibilities and authority above my natural inclinations to want to be first and prioritized and preferenced, that somehow we'll take a backseat. One of the phrases that I hang on to in this subject is one that I heard many years ago, and I've repeated it many times, that a younger person asked an older, mature follower of Jesus this question. The question was, how do you know if you have a servant's heart? And the older, wiser person said to this younger inquirer, the way you know if you have a servant's heart 
is by how you respond when people treat you like a servant. That's really helpful to me. I rehearse that line when I find myself, you know, bristling sometimes in this category. You won't demand your own way. You won't abuse your, abuse your authority. You won't hold the failures of the people around you against them. This is being a servant. Let me ask you a question. Who's the greatest person in your family? Can you think of them? Who's the greatest in your family? In God's eyes, the greatest person in your family is the greatest servant. Who's the greatest person in our church? Same category. Whoever's the greatest servant. Matthew 20, 16, Jesus said, so the last will be first and the first will be last. We get all enamored with people up on the stage, people up front, people in the lights. Everyone wants to be the next American Idol, win this season of The Voice. Everybody wants that. Jesus said, yeah, that girl on the worship team is a great singer. I gave her some gifts, but the person I'm really fired up about is the one who serves without being noticed. That person is great, really great. Greatest of all. The world has lots of problems. Can I burden you with them for a moment? Nearly half of the world's population lives in poverty. I'm not uh, talking about American poverty. You know, people who are in the poverty level in the United States relatively, these are folks who um, uh, almost without exception have a cell phone, a TV, and access to a car. But there are 2.8 billion people who live on this planet who live on less than $2 per day. Half of them, 1.4 billion people on the planet live on less than $1 per day. It's hard to stretch that budget. Child labor in, a, in the world is about 220 million children from the ages of 5 to 14 who have to go to work to support their families. Most of these children work in very hazardous conditions. World's full of poverty. There's also a lot of health issues in our world. Can I just burden you a little bit further? This COVID pandemic has, uh, has disrupted the whole world. Uh, you may not know that there are 36 million cases of AIDS, the AIDS virus in the world right now. Four million people are diagnosed with the AIDS virus every year. 1.8 million children are infected with AIDS in the world every year to this day. We have a, we have a problem in education. There are 775 million adults in the world that are illiterate. 14% of American adults are illiterate. Every, every one out of 1.4% out of 10 people you meet in America can't read or write. That's, that's mind-boggling. Globally, there are 122 million youth who are illiterate. You could hand them a Bible and they wouldn't know what to do with it. That's a problem. You may recall in the 20th century was the most bloody in world history. Mao in communist China killed 73 million of his own citizens in China. Stalin in, in Russia killed 60 million of his own citizens in that communist state. Hitler in World War II killed 50 million. Nothing to speak of Serbia, Japan, Cambodia, Bosnia, North Korea, Rwanda, Nigeria, and the list goes on where tens of millions of people were killed, all of which associated with communist and socialist dictatorships. It's puzzling to me why you can't make the connection between communism and socialism and the murder of tens of millions of people in, in the course of 100 years. 
folks who think socialism is a good idea in today's culture. It's puzzling to me. I don't, I don't know how you miss connecting the dots. Civil, civil war in the new century leading to masses of human beings being refugeed in Syria and Iraq and now, of course, in Afghanistan. At any given moment, there are approximately 43 million people who've been displaced from their country of origin. Christians are being martyred at an unprecedented rate in today's world by ISIS and other radical Islamic terrorist militants throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Christians today will be beheaded and stoned and burned alive and crucified in unprecedented numbers. Is anyone here starting to feel bad? Are you, do you feel burdened? Are you starting to feel overwhelmed? I'm trying to get you to feel overwhelmed. I want you to feel it. I want, you to feel, I want you to feel the weight of the burdens of the world that exists. And let me just make this point. There is the absence of the gospel, which is at the root of the problems of the world, spiritual emptiness that leads to these kinds of conflicts and dysfunction. And let me just remind you that in your own life, in your family's life, there will be no peace. There will be no peace in your city. There will be no peace in your state. There will be no peace in your country. There will be no peace in this world without the Prince of Peace. We need the Prince of Peace. We need him personally. We need him pervasively. So do you feel overwhelmed? I was trying to get you to feel overwhelmed. So what can you do? Most people just whine about the world's problems. Am I annoying you? I'm trying to annoy you. Are you annoyed? It worked. Crying about it's not a good response. It's not great. People, other people complain about it. Stupid world, sick world, fallen world, evil world, terrible world. They complain. Some people criticize. Well, they wouldn't be in that mess if it wasn't for sin and sloth and stuff like that. Other people just get cynical. The world is going over the falls, going to hell in a handbasket. I can't do a thing. That's why I don't bother to vote. That's why I don't bother to do anything to help. Just give up on this whole thing. I'm cynical. Some people cry. They complain. They criticize. They, they exercise cynicism. There is one good choice, though, in response to the world's problems. This will take you places. This will get you somewhere. One good, one good choice. And that is when I stop and say, I choose to serve. I choose to serve. I'm going to serve. I'm going to make a difference anywhere I can. I'm going to volunteer to help. I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to sign up and I'm going to show up. Important connection between those two things, signing up and showing up. I maybe can't do much, but I will make a small difference in my world. Let me put it to you this way. I'll put it on the screen for you. I can't change the world, but I can change my own destiny. I'm going to be a servant. I can't change the world, but I can change my own destiny. I'm going to be a servant. Now, let me make this statement to you. Your Christian life will never make sense to you until you learn to serve. Let me say it again. Your Christian life will never make sense to you until you learn to serve. You will never find your life, your meaning, your purpose until you start giving your life away. Your Christian life 
will therefore always be an obligation, a project, a duty, a burden, and something I'm supposed to do. It will never be gratifying, satisfying, or life-giving. Never makes sense to you until you learn to serve. A few weeks ago, Beth and I, on the heels of celebrating our 40th anniversary of pastoring this church, we were in the north part of the state for an, for an event, and we decided we would just drive by the original church, a little cornfield church out in the country. We'd just drive by there on the way home just for kicks. Hadn't been by for a long time. And so we made our way across the county, and we drove by the original church. And as we approached the Union Chapel, a little red brick church in the middle of the cornfield, 12 miles north of town, we both became very emotional. And we began to weep. And it was interesting because it caught us both off guard. You know, we came in view of this church and suddenly it just moved us. And we, and we drove on by and we were in tears as we drove by. And I said to her, because she's my, my therapist, my, my chief counsel, and I don't always know why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. I said, what is happening to us? She said, I'm not sure. And when she's not sure, so we had to start sorting it. And we thought, well, maybe we're emotional because of all these wonderful relationships that we have starting in that little church from 40 years ago. And so, so many wonderful memories and so many wonderful people and so many moments that God blessed us and lives were changed. And we, we just thought, well, maybe it's that. And we thought about it. We said, No. That is not why we're, we're crying. That's not, it would be a reason to, but that's not it. We drove a few miles. We almost got all the way back into town before we finally figured out why it had hit us so powerfully, so, so emotionally when we just looked at that building, looked at that little church sitting there. But we finally figured it out. We realized that when we saw that little church after all that we'd been through and celebrating 40 years and all that, and all that was poignant and fresh in our mind, we realized it was so emotional to us because that represented, it was like an icon of where we gave our lives away. We were 26 years old when we started pastoring this church 40 years ago. We had a little three-month-old baby we had knelt down next to our bed before the first day and we prayed a simple prayer, Lord, we're going to give you our best. If you'll please give us your best. And we gave our lives away. Day in and day out, serving God and serving people, serving the community. We've literally given our lives, our whole lives in this way. And looking at that church moved us because that's what it represented, our lives, our whole lives. And you say, well, you must have been sad. You gave your life away. No, 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 you've not been listening to the sermon. You've not been paying attention. It wasn't about giving our lives away for nothing. It was giving our lives away for something. For Jesus' sake. And, and, so, and so the emotion 
wasn't just the poignancy of giving a life away, but the gratification and the satisfaction and the fulfillment and the purposefulness of knowing that you've given your life away for something that's meaningful and has eternal benefit and brings honor to God. Listen, I said it before and I'll say it again. Maybe you can hear it more clearly. Your Christian life will never make sense to you until you learn to serve. It'll never make sense. It'll just be something else you have to do and you will have missed the opportunity to really live. Jesus said, unless you give your life away, you can't find your life. Do, do you understand that's, that's so counterintuitive to what the world teaches? The world says, grab for all you can, as much as you can, as often as you can, whatever makes you happy, go for it. But Jesus said, listen, give your life away. If you want to be great, you have to be a servant. If you want to be altered great, then you become the slave of all. If you want to really know your life and the meaning and purpose of your life and the destiny for which God designed you and gave you life and gave you an opportunity to live this life is found in giving your life away. Jesus is the model for this, isn't he? Wouldn't you agree that Jesus should, should have been worthy of the highest honor, highest position, most substantial power, all the, all the accessories that we afford to people who are honorable and great in our world, you would agree that he, he deserved it? But instead, he gave his life as the suffering servant so we might be restored to life. So people ask all the time, Do you, has God, I wonder if God has called me into ministry full time. The answer is yes, 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 yes. He's called every last single one of us into full-time service. Mm -hmm. Now, it may not be a full-time vocational ministry, but all of us are called to give our lives in service to others. God is calling you to greatness, and greatness comes through serving. Jesus said in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One more verse, look at it, Colossians 3. Whatever your hand finds you to do, the Apostle Paul said, do it with all your might, for it is the Lord Christ that you're serving. One more story, a friend of mine, his name is Arthur Ivey. Arthur and I met when I was associated with the Mission Society for United Methodists. This was a, uh, a mission agency within our denomination. And so I got to meet a number of amazing people serving Christ around the world. And Arthur Ivey felt called to go to Bogota, Colombia, and work with street children in that city. Tens of thousands of these children who are orphaned or just abandoned and exploited and trafficked and abused. It's just horrific by the, the tens of thousands of them in this one city. And so Arthur Ivey packed his little family up and went to Columbia. And the first two years, according to his story, he opened up this center that, and invited street kids to come in. He would try to help them any way he could. And he told local officials, hey, I'm open for business. And just very little response. Uh, very few children making their way and finding their way into this place. And Arthur Ivey was discouraged, and he was frustrated. 
And he couldn't understand why God wasn't allowing him to reach more children. Until one night, Arthur Ivy had a dream. And in his dream, imagine this vivid dream from God. Imagine having this dream. Put yourself there. And he sees Jesus walking up to him in his dream. And he has a basin of water and a towel over his arm. Jesus. And he walks up to my friend Arthur. He says, Arthur, I'm here to wash your feet. And you can understand Arthur's response when he said, in his dream, he said, no, Lord. No, no, Lord, I I can't let you wash my feet. Jesus said, just like he said to Peter, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he said, well, listen, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you can't have no part of me because you don't get it. You don't understand how to be great. And Arthur said, okay, Lord. And he sat down in the chair and and Jesus knelt down at his feet. Can you imagine? Knelt down at his feet and prepared the water and the towel. And he took Arthur's feet, feet in his hands. And he looked at his feet and then he looked up at Arthur and he said, Arthur, why aren't your feet dirty? He said, how, how can I wash your feet? if they're not dirty. Arthur woke from his dream and he knew exactly what he had to do. And rather than getting up and going into the center that he developed to reach these kids on the street, Arthur went went to the streets and he started touching these children personally and began to minister to them on the street. And it built from there. Today, every week, Arthur Ivey in Bogota, Colombia, serves about 2,500 street children in his center. Clothing, feeding, medicating, coaching, leading to Jesus. These children, who otherwise would have no hope of this kind of protection and care. 2,500 a week. And it's because Arthur Ivey realized he had to get his feet dirty. Closing question How dirty are your feet? How dirty are your feet? Jesus, the suffering servant, is ready to wash your feet as long as you get them dirty. He who has an ear, let him hear. Amen? Let's pause and pray about this. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture where you so clearly articulate what it means to be great. So, Lord, help us to be great as you count greatness. We pray for opportunities in our family, our community, and the church that we can actually give ourselves and to serve others. Lord, I always come under conviction myself when I tell that story about my friend. I always feel it. So, Lord, as you provide opportunities, may we be willing to get our feet dirty and our hands as well. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?